just telling uh, the bread folks this morning, I'm excited that my own daughter, my oldest daughter, is uh, actually on a retreat with the campus ministry from West Georgia that was here a couple of weeks ago there in Florida over the weekend for a retreat, and Catherine Henry, another one of two of our, our girls, and uh, so I'm very excited about that. It's so important, um, this campus ministry, especially in our culture, and, and so great to hear those kind of stories. That really, really encourages us, and, and know that y'all have a passion for that and are making that happen, so thank you. Um, well, we finished up our study in the book of Philippians, and uh, I'm going to kind of do a standalone sermon today to lead up to some things that will be coming in the next few weeks. But um, in the, in the, uh, a lot of y'all know Parker Brothers. How many of y'all have board games with Parker Brothers? Any of y'all? Okay. Well, I, I, I heard about this week a, a game back in the 1950s. I didn't even know this was a Parker Brothers game. Well, I wasn't even born then, but anyway. <laughs> um, it was called Going to Jerusalem. Is anybody familiar with this? Did anybody know this? This was actually a Bible game that, that Parker Brothers made called Going to Jerusalem. And it wasn't, you know, they had the little pieces. Of course, it's the, you know, the typical board with the rolling of the dice and moving the little, the little things around. And you know, in Monopoly, you have a top hat and the Scotty dog and, and the car and all that kind of stuff. And, and now it's even gone beyond that. But in going to Jerusalem, you got to be a real disciple. So you were a little plastic man with a robe and a beard and a staff. And you were literally following Jesus. I'm not making this up. I had a picture of it, but I don't think it was going to be a good enough picture. There's, there's some actually for sale on eBay and I think something called BoardGameGeek.com, something like that. So there's actually a real game. But in order to move across the board, you looked up some answers in a little black New Testament that would be provided in the game. Can you imagine that nowadays, trying to do that? And uh, uh, you would start in Bethlehem, and you would make stops at the Mount of Olives, at Bethsaida, Capernaum, the Stormy Sea, the Na Nazareth, Bethany. And if you roll the dice well, you went all the way into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But you never got to the crucifixion and you never got to the resurrection. There were no demons. There were no angry Pharisees you had to deal with, anything like that. But you only made your way through the nice stories. It was a safe adventure perfectly suited for a Christian family on a Sunday afternoon to sit there and play. So this guy talking about it said, It never occurred to me while leaning over the card table, jiggling the dice in my hand, that traveling with Jesus wasn't meant for plastic disciples who looked up verses in a little black Bible. If you're going to walk with Jesus as his disciple in this world, you may need to change your expectations. After all, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And that is what he said, isn't it? And we understand that. We can quote that. But when I was in seminary, I came across a quote in my reading, and a lot of stuff we had to read, and you know, you just had to read it. It was required reading. But as I was reading one day, I came across a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, and he wrote this, and it really hit me hard as I was reading. He says, A follower is or strives to be what he admires. An admirer, however, keeps himself personally detached. He fails to see that what is admired involves a claim upon him, and thus he fails to be or strive to be what he admires. That really stuck out at me because I thought about discipleship and I thought about a lot of times we do. We admire Jesus and we think he's great, but we don't really understand that he's calling us to be a disciple and that has a claim upon our lives. So I wrote that down and I kept it on my desk for a long, long time so I could read it over and over again. But in our text today, it may hit you hard as well. 
And I can only imagine that it hit those who originally heard Jesus actually say what we're going to read today because it was like, what? I don't know about that, Jesus. That seems a little extreme to be your follower. We have to do what? And as you hear it, you will probably say, yeah, that is difficult. And some of you have heard it before. Uh, But so much so, those originally that heard it wanted to kill Jesus because he said it. Not just because he said it, because he meant it, because he lived it out. And actually, true discipleship in Jesus would forever cause this tension between true, authentic relationship with God and what would be man-made religious political establishments for power and position. And that tension still exists today, doesn't it? We see it and hear it all the time. So we're going to read our text today, and this is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 25 through 35, and obviously that's on the screens, thank you, or you can look at your Bibles or your personal devices. But listen to, to what Luke tells us about a day in the life of Jesus. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, when you read that, you go, man, that's hard. The requirements to follow Jesus according to that is first you've got to hate your mother and father, hate your wife and children, hate your brothers and sisters, hate your own life, and then take up your cross and follow Jesus. And at that I kind of want to go, yeah, I'm good at being an admirer. <laughs> I'll just stay there because that's, I'm not doing that hate thing to my family, Jesus. That, that's too hard. That's over the top. That's ridiculous. And that's why people are turned off to Christianity, and to Jesus because of ridiculous kind of things like that. Do you really think you're going to attract people to the church or to campus ministry when you present discipleship in those terms? But that's what Jesus said, didn't he? I mean, it's clear. It's right there. And there's this real tension in our lives to either be a follower of Jesus or simply an admirer. To play church, to play the Christian club game and say the right things and do the right things and show up every now and then, or this chameleon game. When I'm here, I'm this person, but when I'm over here, I'm this person. And I can be all of those things. Well, it's true that the behavior of certain Christians, the judgmental attitudes, the legalistic attitudes of so-called Christians, surely that turns people off. But in reality, people simply turn off Jesus... And they turn off his bride 
because it doesn't fit into their lifestyle or their desires. That's the reality of that. There was a guy named Lord Kenneth Clark who was known for his television series Civilization. And he lived and died without actually becoming a disciple of Jesus uh, or even having faith in Christ. And he actually admitted one time in his autobiography that he visited this beautiful church one time. And he had in that church what he believed was was this overwhelming experience. He says, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had ever experienced in my life before. But this flood of grace, as he called it, created a problem. He says, if I allowed myself to be influenced by it, I know that my life would have to change dramatically. My family might think that I had lost my mind, and maybe that intense joy would prove just to be some sort of a passing illusion. So he concluded, I was deeply embedded in the world, so much so that I was not going to change course at this point. And he never put his faith in Christ. So I wonder how many people are so embedded in this world that they won't change course. They won't become a disciple. And are we even willing to change courses or to realize that maybe the course I'm on is not the right course? Please understand what Jesus is emphasizing here. True discipleship that really transforms our lives. Jesus knew that everyone would not follow this path, but he makes clear that if you do, there's some really clear, crystal clear expectations, and they're difficult. Now, I don't, I'm not standing up here saying that there's certain believers in Jesus that are not really disciples, or that they don't love God, or they're going to hell because they're not really followers of Christ. That's not my, that's not my decision to make or any of ours, right? But it's very clear what Jesus is saying that's laid out, what true discipleship means. True following of Jesus gives us a depth of life like no other. And that's why he talks about how serious this is. It will force difficult decisions that will collide with those who are not followers of Jesus. And it can come between us and our family members. Some of y'all know that. Now, when you talk, and and, and I know in campus ministry, y'all have had students who are from a different faith, and when they talk about going away from their faith that they grew up with to take on Christianity and be a true disciple of Jesus. Man, that's not a simple thing, is it? Sometimes family members will disown them. It's a difficult thing. But for most of us, we don't really have to do with that. But sometimes it does collide with our family members. When it comes to choices, when it comes to decisions in life, we are either going to conform to the way we've always done it or the world standards, or we're going to be transformed by Jesus' teaching in life. And that can hit in so many different areas of our life. What we do with our money, where we go to school, what we're going to uh, do for a living. You know, I think about campus ministry and I think about the stories. I think about some of y'all. I think about some of the stories Rick Harper has told us over the years when kids go to Georgia Tech and expecting to make a six-figure salary when they come out of Tech. And some of these kids in campus ministry go and tell their parents, no, actually, I'm going to need support now because I'm going to be a missionary with CCF. And he says he's got some angry parents about that. And there's that thing where he goes, you must hate me. I put all that money into sending you to school and you're supposed to go out and make some money and you're doing what? You're going to go talk about Jesus in a different country or on a campus? What? See, there's that tension that Jesus talked to us about. It can be a reality. And our families will think that we hate them when we go with Jesus on some of these decisions about things. 
Think about, a, just for an example, a family who somehow inherits a, a bunch of money from a family member or, or wins the lottery, and all of a sudden, what if the mother and father say, you know what, I know what we're thinking we want to do. The kids are all excited. They're teenagers, and they go, yeah, we're getting new cars. We're getting a bigger house with a pool, and they're thinking all this. And then the parents all of a sudden announce to the teenagers, no, actually, we're not. We're giving we're going to donate that money to a church or a mission or a ministry. Rather than upgrade our home that's already good enough, we all got cards. We don't need any of that stuff. And the kids are going, you must hate us. And this is the kind of things that Jesus is talking about. There can be these kind of tensions. When we express our opinion about someone's moral choices, being clearly against God's word and something we can't support, a family member will go, what do you mean? So you hate me. That's what you're saying. No, I'm just saying this is what God's words, and I can't support that. I can't agree with you on that. And it feels like you hate a family member. And this is what Jesus is talking about. When a person, a couple, or a family follows Jesus together, it's not perfect and it's not easy, but when you have ingrained that we're followers of Jesus and what he says, what he taught, this is how we operate in every aspect of our lives. And that's why I'm so excited about campus ministry because in a lot of ways you guys are dealing with people on a secular campus that's, that's really hitting hard with this discipleship thing. Sometimes in a Christian college it can be a little easier to do that, but on a, on a, a secular campus it can be a little more difficult. And the community that I've seen among campus ministries is an amazing thing that translates from the campus ministry into churches and brings that same kind of community that's so needed. But giving up everything is, is, is everything. Giving up everything? You mean if I can't give up everything, then I can't be a follower of Jesus? That's what he's saying, y'all. I don't like it either. I don't know to what extent you have to make those changes in your life. I don't know what extent I need to. I can only do, deal with my life, but that's what Jesus said. He says, you know, giving up everything is recognizing that God has a claim on every aspect of my life, every area of my life, and I've got to be willing to surrender those areas to him. And if I can't surrender those areas to him, it's going to be a problem because that means I'm still holding on to something that I think is really mine. But when I do willingly surrender those areas to God, then I can listen to him. I can understand and learn and follow what he desires for me in those areas of my life anyway because he's created those things for me and I should listen to him on how I go about that anyway. But when we're still trying to control our own life and situations and not truly surrendering to Christ, then there will be a tension between us and anyone who is a true disciple. I'm, I'm doing a wedding this afternoon and, I, and I've got a couple more in, in the next month. And what's been interesting is I talk with some of these, these couples um, about their wedding and their vows and those kind of things is, man, there's this, there's this tension um, about when, it, you know, I'll show them these different uh, uh, services that you can use. And invariably somebody will put something in there about, um, honor, you know, the, the husband and wife thing. And the part where Paul talks about Ephesians, that you're so submit to your husbands. And I can't tell you how many women go, we're not putting that part in the service. I mean, just, and I'm like, whoa, 
You know, I mean, it's just this, this area. And I, and I try to go, well, you know, yeah, I, I see what's in that service there. And that's really not a really, a, you know, that's not exactly in context. And I try to go to Ephesians and talk about how Paul talks about first that we all should submit to one another. And, and that, you know, just as the, the wife's supposed to submit to the husband, that, that the husband's supposed to love the wife as Christ loved the church. But, but man, just that attitude of there's a part of my life that you're not getting. You're not going to tell me what to do. And, and, and I feel that in our culture, do y'all? There's just this, this thing about my freedom is the most important thing, and by gosh, no one's going to tell me what to do. And you just feel this tension. But when you become a, a follower of Christ, there's this surrendering part of our life where, no, I don't understand. There is parts of my life that, yeah, it, I think I have it, but I really don't. And that's why I'm surrendering to you, Jesus, because I need you to show me how that's really supposed to, 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 to work out in my life anyway. N.T. Wright in his book, The Challenge of Jesus, says this, The way to Christian growth is often to allow oneself to be puzzled and startled by new apparent complexity. Is it, after all, Jesus we want to discover and follow, or would we prefer an idol of our own making? And that's what I see a lot in our culture today. People, I never hear anybody say anything bad about Jesus. Oh, yeah, I love those parables. Nobody ever says anything bad about Jesus, but when it comes right down to it, but they're not going to completely commit. So Jesus uses two illustrations to make his point when he talks about this. He's kind of dropped this bombshell. If you don't hate your family and people are just kind of, you know, stunned at this, and then he goes into a couple of his stories, which he's always great. He says, suppose you're going to build a tower. And I'm assuming Jesus in this culture is talking about like a watchtower over someone who has a big vineyard. And you have to build this watchtower so you can see what's going on. And he says, if, if you're going to do that, don't you sit down first and you figure out how much is it going to cost for the materials and everything that goes into this. I need to know how much I'm going to have to pay laborers. How much is the, uh, you know, all the cost involved in building this thing. I need to know that up front. And do I have enough money? He says, because if you lay the foundation without counting the cost, you will run out of money before completion. And he talks about people who go, look at that guy. So he laid the foundation, but he didn't finish. Now, have you ever seen a house that's been being built? There's a house... Um, not far from where we live. And it's been going up, y'all, for two years. I'm not lying. I know people thought that about our church building here for a while, okay? But this house has been going up. And I don't know what the deal is. I'm fascinated by this house because first they laid this foundation and it sat there for months, you know? And then, and then these walls started going up and they did the framing and that sat there for months. Then it seems like they put the windows in and, and some other things and still nobody's living there. But I still see contractors in and out of there every now and then. I go, I'll get excited because I'm like, hey, maybe they're going to finish this week. But I'm lit- I can't, I don't know what it is. I'm thinking, are these people paying with cash? And they're just going to, when they get it, they'll, they'll, all right, put the windows in. All right, put the roof on. I, I don't know what they're doing. But I'm thinking, what is going on with this house? But it gets your attention, doesn't it? When you see something going up and you wonder, why isn't that finished yet? I used to have a car that I was going to restore. And I remember people bringing people into the garage in my parents' house. And I go, hey, this is my BMW that I'm going to restore one day. And they would just kind of, you could see their eyes going, yeah. There's no engine in it. There's no glass in it. There's a lot of rust on it and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 you know, you know, and I'd be all excited. And they were just like, yeah. And I'm sure they went away and go, Craig's got this car. That ain't never going to happen. And guess what? It didn't happen. It didn't happen. I ended up selling all the pieces to this guy and cried as it went down the road. But it never happened because I didn't count the cost. I did not count the cost. And Jesus is talking about that. Then he gives us another illustration. Suppose a king is about to go to war. 
This is a serious thing. My country against another country is going to involve death and battle. Something's going to happen here. We need to really count the cost. And he says, I've got 10,000 men going against. And he realizes the other country has 20,000. I don't know. I kind of thought about that after 20 years in Afghanistan. Did we really count the cost? What in the world? What happened there? I don't know the answer. But it seemed like somebody didn't really count the cost because in three weeks, all of a sudden, the bad guys are taking over again. How did this happen? I don't know the answer to that, but that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. You've got to count the cost. He says, because if you do and you realize, I've got 10,000, they've got twice as many, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed, there's no way we can win this, then you send ahead of time somebody to say, hey, wait a minute, let's, let's write up some peace treaty here. Let's have some terms of peace instead of this huge loss. And then Jesus says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, there he is, he hits them with it again. You cannot be my disciples. This seems extreme, and it is. It's what Jesus said a lot and laid out these clear expectations. Well, you know, Luke wasn't really one of the, the, the 12 disciples. So maybe he kind of got that mixed up. Maybe he was being a little harsh with what Jesus was saying about discipleship. Maybe he kind of embellished it a little bit just because he was trying to get to people. No, I go over to Matthew's gospel, who was actually one of Jesus' disciples, and in Matthew 10, he says this, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's pretty consistent, isn't it? Jesus was clear on that. He wanted people to know. He wanted them to be a disciple, but he says there's a cost involved. And although Matthew doesn't record the word hate, it's very clear that there's going to be tension in your family and among your closest relationships when you do try to be a follower of Jesus, and it's going to cause some tension. And the last part of that text lines up with Luke's. If salt loses its saltiness, think about that. And you think, how does salt lose its saltiness? But in the ancient world, they used salt for a lot of things. They didn't have refrigerators. You know, they used salt to preserve a lot of food, and they would put it on fish and all kinds of things. And, man, after you've used it with fish, I'm pretty sure I don't want to put that on my potatoes after that. <laughs> you know? And it could get to a point where it's not salty anymore. It's got something else mixed in it, and it's not good for anything anymore but just to throw out, Jesus says. And that last part I think about, if we lose who we really are, Paul says in Ephesians that we are Christ's, workmanship we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he's prepared in advance for us to do that's my favorite verse that tells me what my purpose is here on the earth and if that's who I am but I'm not really being I'm not doing those good works I'm not being that workmanship of Christ then I'm not really being who I was made to be and my salt has lost its saltiness 
So we're needing, what are we needing to give up to be a true disciple? I don't know what it is for you. There's different areas of our life. And man, you start talking about money. So in the next few weeks, what I want to do is take some of those different areas of our life and some of the things we do at the church that we do. And we say, why do we need to do those? Because those help point us to be a disciple of Christ. Well, why do we do those? Why does that help me? So we're going to go through some of those in the next few weeks. But some of us need to consider that question without the arrogant. Well, I'm telling you what, I'm not giving up. I kind of think about some of those brides I've been working with, like, wow, good luck, buddy. You're going to have a fun life. I ain't doing that. But that attitude of that arrogant, I'm telling you what, I'm not going to give up. And Jesus goes, you're not ready. You know, we have, we've had a, 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 an amazing ministry to um, folks who were caught in addiction over the years. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone to one of those men or women and say, hey, I'm, I'm dealing with a person or a family and they've got somebody in their family and could maybe you talk to them and, and I'll, I'll turn them on to one of these people and they'll come back and go, yeah, they're not ready. And you know why they know that? Because they've been there. And they know exclusively from, they say, man, I remember how I used to make excuses. Say, oh, yeah, I don't have a problem. And he said, they're not ready. And so I think a lot of times we're not ready to really be a disciple of Jesus. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, I go to church. I believe in God. Man, get off my back. We're really not ready because there's certain areas of our life you go, yeah, well, I'll, I'll be a Christian at that point. But when you start getting into my money, you start getting into my personal life, well, that, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing that. And that's, it's a process, isn't it? It doesn't happen overnight. When we come up from that water, we are a new person with the Holy Spirit in us. But it's not like all of a sudden everything is perfect and, and we never make another bad decision. It's a process. It was for Jesus' disciples, wasn't it? It was for every God follower I read about in the Bible. It was a process. I mean, my goodness. Moses wandered around with a bunch of gripey people for 40 years and he didn't get to go to the promised land. I always go, that's so unfair. You know, I'm like, Moses, you're here, but man, are you still bitter about that? I'm sure he's not going to be. But you think about that. They had a struggle. Think about all those struggles that David went through. What was it, 11 or 12 or 13 years by the time he was anointed king till he actually took over as king? Jeremiah preached for 40 years and nobody believed him and everybody hated him, but everything he said came true. That's a struggle to be a disciple. And he wanted to quit, but he says, but it's inside of me, this burning inside of me. I have, to, I have to say this stuff. The prophets all said those kind of things. But it's a process. It was for Jesus' disciples. And sometimes they wanted to, but they couldn't, and they walked away. Peter thought he could, but then when it came down to it, he denied Jesus three times. Yeah, he stumbled. Yes, he fell down, but he got back up. But some couldn't do it. Remember the rich young ruler? He walked away from Jesus. Remember Nicodemus? He wanted to meet Jesus at night. And I don't know if y'all been watching this chosen thing. If you're not, you should be because it's pretty awesome. But man, this character in, in Nicodemus, man, it shows the tension that Nicodemus has. He wants to be a follower of Jesus so much, but he just can't do it. He can't get away from the political power that he has as a Pharisee, and he won't do it. He won't do it. And Judas was the same way. He was actually a disciple in label of Jesus, but he couldn't do it. Wait a minute, Jesus. No, you know, you're supposed to take over Rome. You're not supposed to die on a cross. And if you're not going to do that, then I'm going to give you up for 30 pieces of silver. He couldn't do it. They thought they were ready to follow him. But the rest of the disciples, they ultimately stumbled and fell, and they almost gave up. But when they saw, they almost gave up when they saw Jesus on that cross, and they saw him get pulled down dead and in a tomb for three days going, what now? 
What now? But man, when they saw him alive and touched his hands and his side, and they saw the reality that Jesus was alive, and now that disciples thing made sense. I can do it now because he's resurrected. He's alive. They kept following even when it was really hard. So what about us today? It's more than just talk or saying the right things around the right people, isn't it? It's something in our lifestyle that says people that, you know what? We really, really do follow the one we call our Lord and our Savior. We really do follow him. So this morning, the transforming presence and power of God is available through Christ right now. And you can live in that power, but you must become his disciples. That involves sacrifice. But are we willing to start that process and realize it's not just a process for a few months or a few weeks or a few days, but it's a process for a lifetime? There was a guy that showed up last night. We had a marriage thing last night. It went really good. But towards the end, this guy showed up off the road. And as this guy showed up, he had just left a recovery program. And it was an 18-month recovery program. And as I'm trying to deal with him last night, I go, so, so how far are you into the program? Two months. And he left. And man, I just thought, man, dude, that's what you needed. You needed that program, and you left it too early. And so we need to understand that being a disciple of Christ is a lifelong thing. And there's going to be struggles, and there's going to be times we want to quit, but we can't. We have to stay with it, be committed to it for life. And that's why Jesus made this so clear. In every aspect of our life, we have to really follow Jesus and show that. And sometimes it's not easy. So this morning, we offer an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here today. I don't know. It sounds pretty tough this morning. But there may be somebody here that says, you know what, I know, but I want to be a follower of Jesus. So we're going to offer that invitation. Are you looking for a church? And we present what Jesus said is the truth. We support campus ministries where we know they are out there saying, hey, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is what it requires. And that's how we have great stories of like an atheist finally saying, I think that's an awesome story, that I was just doing it because it was cool. And there's a lot of people in the world that are doing things. They're just conforming. But Jesus says, don't, don't buy into that. That's not who you really are. You're really a child of God, and be who you really 